So good to see all of the current students who are here in chapel on this day, but also former students and uh, members of the alumni board. And I think we have three former student body presidents that are, are on the alumni board. And one of the things I've enjoyed through my years has been meeting on a regular basis uh, with the student body president who is serving in any given year and uh, have great memories of uh, the different ideas and the relationships and the friendships that we've developed. And then some of the other alumni from the a number of years ago, so it's, um, it's absolutely great. Can I tell you just a funny little story for the fun of it? Because I, I taught here and have been here for a number of years, there are former students who come back, or I might meet them out in a church or a camp or something, and uh, <clears throat> sometimes they, because they've been students, there's a student-teacher relationship. But when people graduate and move out into life and ministry, the relationship changes. So sometimes former students will say things like, um, I'm not exactly sure what to call you. And um, because they're wondering, you know, as the development of the relationship has gone on, have, have we come to a first name basis yet? Right. And I'll say, oh, well, we could do a number of things. We could, uh, we could do Dr. Anderson. That's a formal academic title, President Anderson. That's a positional title. A Brother Anderson, that would be the AG title. <laughs> you know, we use that. And, um, but actually, I tell them what I prefer is none of those official titles. Well, what I just really would uh, appreciate is just a simple, Your Highness. <laughs> it's, it's, isn't that funny? And so they will laugh, and I'll say, now look, all of my former students are current friends, and all of my friends call me Gordon, okay? So it's to say that we are current friends, but I've told that little shtick, that little joke, like at a camp, and then for all week, you know, people will be, <laughs> your highness, you know, so it's kind of fun. But it's good to see friends, and to have friends, and uh, all of my friends call me Gordon. So thank you for being friends and for being here. It's just wonderful. <clears throat> now, I, will, I may struggle a little bit in the presentation this morning, um, and I'll just explain why. I had cataract surgery on Monday, so I had a lens, the natural lens, taken out, an artificial lens put in, and it's working quite well but there is a bit of a problem, and that is the correction for this lens in my glasses and this lens in my eye, and this lens in my glasses and this lens in my eye are not all synchronized, with the result that things are just really looking weird. So <clears throat> uh, I assure you, if you see some glazed look up here, no, I'm not doing anything strange on the side. <laughs> it's just, uh, <clears throat> just okay, strictly just a physical thing. So if, um, if uh, you be patient with me, if uh, I seem to stumble or take my glasses off and put them on, and um, we will get through the message this morning, which is a, a very, very deeply moving message to me, <clears throat> and it has to do with bringing together a summary of this week and tying together some points that may 
initially, or as we have been in the various meetings this week and the activities, may not have seemed to be connected, or maybe that you wouldn't have seen the connections. But uh, my hope is to help you see those connections and to see how powerful, how wonderful uh, a week we have had here with the Antioch Initiative, with friends who have come literally from around the world to be a part of this, and uh, Dick Brogdon's preaching and, and my summary here this week. Uh, let's put up a slide. The uh, reference from Acts 11:26. Okay, then uh, can you see it? I can't. Okay, there, that's better. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Antioch. The um, Christians are in, of, and like Jesus, and as such are agents of Christ doing business in his name. They are little Christs. Let me go over that again. The thesis statement for each of my messages, I endeavor to reduce the, the main thought to one sentence, and the key words then have to be packed with meaning to uh, lay hold of everything that I'm, I'm trying to cover in the message and get it revealed in one sentence. Christians are in. We've been dealing with what it means to be in Christ and Christ in us. This is the mystical union of the human existence with the supernatural divine nature of God. We are in Christ. We are of Christ. Um, what Christ is, we become. Uh, it would be unthinkable that we would be born again and become the sons and daughters of Christ and bear no resemblance or likeness to him. We are to be transformed into his likeness. We are of Christ and we are like him. And as such, we are agents of Christ. And I uh, tried to find one word, operatives, functionaries, participants, you know, how do, how, do you, how do you describe the fact that we are intertwined with the heart and nature of God, the heart and nature of Christ, and the ministry of Christ? And so I just chose the word agents, but the other words could serve as well. We are operatives. We're functionaries. We're participants. How about co-laborers with Christ? And we do business in his name. If we ask anything in his name... Uh, we will have it, because there's power and authority in the name of Jesus. And I'll come back to that, just a bit more of an explanation with how this uh, text this morning, the church at Antioch, and there, the disciples first being named as Christians, doing business in the name of Christ, and they are little Christ. Christians are little Christs. This is actually not uh, rooted in the Greek and the etymology of the uh, word Christian, although it, it can be seen that way, but both Martin Luther, C.S. Lewis, and others have used this phrase, little Christs, to try to capture what it means to be the offspring of God, uh, to be the children of God, to be brothers and sisters with the Lord Jesus Christ, and that we are then part of it, but of course we're not divine like God, we're not divine like Jesus but we are spiritual. And uh, so the image of being a little Christ or a representative of Christ has been used, and I think it's a very serviceable thing that helps us understand who we are in Jesus. So Christians are in, of, and like Jesus, and as such are agents of Christ doing business in his name 
They are little Christs. Been preaching on nearness to God, nearness to Christ, the flow of the Holy Spirit from the Spirit of God through our human being and our human capacity to have fellowship, interaction with, and to feel the presence of God. And I've used this, uh, these questions before, but it's good, I think, to summarize that little bracelet. What would Jesus do? And that is a matter of knowledge. You try to think of what Jesus would do in any given circumstance, and then you try to mimic that. You say, well, I know what he would do. The Bible tells me and shows me, so I will do the same thing. And that's a very good thing. However, mimicry rooted in human strength and ability so often, maybe most of the time, falls short. We know what we ought to do. We know what Jesus did. We try hard to do it. But until you have the power to get it done, it's more of a goal, an aspiration, than a reality. I've asked this question, what would you do if you felt the presence of Jesus next to you all the time? That's a different kind of a question. Not knowing what he would do, but what would you do if you felt him? And we even did that little, um, my little human video when I had some people come up here, you know, and lay hands on me. And, and uh, I felt <clears throat> impacted and affected by the people who were standing around me and hanging on to me. And it had an impact on my behavior. And if you were to think that if Jesus were right here all the time, and everything I would say, I would look to see if he'd raised an eyebrow or say right on or whatever he might do in response to how I would live, what I would say, attitudes that I would have. Certainly, a felt presence of God will have a deep and powerful impact upon your life. Here's a third question. What would you do if you were just like Jesus? And that's even perhaps a deeper and more profound question. What would you do if you were, were just like Jesus? Well, this week we've had the Antioch Initiative, and I think on first glance, the Antioch Initiative looks to be an emphasis on missions, and it most certainly is that, but it's not only that. And the fact that it's much more than that is what makes it so valuable and so important to us. The Antioch Initiative, it is a partnership between North Central University and the Assemblies of God World Missions. And the goal of Antioch is to prepare students to be able to reach the world's most unreached, those who have no access to the gospel. And um, often we refer to the, Boost, uh, the Buddhists, the Muslims, and the Hindus in countries that are difficult to enter and where relationships are difficult or perhaps impossible to establish. And so the uh, AGWM, we've had people come to visit. It's just absolutely been remarkable. And uh, Omar Byler was here this week. He is the regional director for Eurasia, uh, nearly one half the world's population living in that uh, very far-flung geographical area, but um, many Hindus and uh, uh, Muslims in that area. Omar is a long-standing friend. Uh, I've known him for some 20 years when he was uh, pastoring the International Church in Vienna, preached a week of meetings with him and uh, on other occasions, but uh, preached my series on revival. And uh, so this whole thing of the presence of God, and we, we just go back many, many years, and um, we have a, a, a 
funny little uh, fun and funny little experience together. They had a Nigerian worship team in the international church. They had Austrians and English and Americans and Nigerians and uh, Filipinos. And wonderful, wonderful church in Vienna. The Nigerian worship team was uh, leading in worship one night. And uh, the leader of the team, in encouraging people to worship, <clears throat> he said this, Shake your body for the Lord. Okay? <laughs> Uh, you, have to, you have to pronounce the words all very, very carefully in uh, that uh, exhortation to worship expression physically, but, you know, shake your body for the Lord, which is something the Austrians and the English don't do very well, <clears throat> uh, but the uh, Nigerians, they did so exceptionally well. But um, a time of uh, revival services with Omar and Pat, his wife, and then off in Moscow when they were there, and now in this role. Ron Maddox overseeing the work in Northern Asia, which is largely China, and um, the Buddhist and the Confucianists and Shinto and those religions there. Charles Porter, who is on our faculty as missionary in residence, Charles was a student here, and many years ago we were at a missions meeting in Springfield, Missouri. Charles was there and had no way to get back to Minneapolis, and we just met at the meeting and and uh, he said, I don't have a way to get back to Minneapolis. And I didn't know Charles. We just knew that he was a student here. So he jumped in our van, crawled in the back, and slept all the way from Springfield to Minneapolis. So that was really not where we got acquainted. But that's where our uh, friendship got started. And now here he is, and we prayed for him and his family and his, his um, son, Joshua, this morning. Nick and Marseille Robinson coming to us from India, the Live Dead Project. Now, this is a focus on missions. But if it is only missions the way we ordinarily think of it, it turns into an us-them. And we have an event where we celebrate them, and we hope they do a good job going where they are going. But the Antioch Initiative is rooted in, I would say, the DNA of the church at Antioch. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. There was a persecution in Jerusalem. Stephen was stoned to death. Saul was standing there consenting unto the death of Stephen in Acts chapter 8. Then Paul, Saul becomes Paul, with his own Damascus Road experience, and this is absolutely remarkable, that this great persecutor becomes the great apostle of the church. But because of that uh, turmoil, because of the death of Stephen and the persecution, the church scattered, many of them, going north and west up into what is present-day Turkey, really on the border between Turkey and Syria, to Antioch, the third largest city there in the ancient world. And in that setting, they were called Christians first. The disciples or followers of Christ were first called Christians there at Antioch. The Greek word for called um, actually means to transact business in the name of. And that's why I put that in the thesis statement. It's a word that means doing business in the name of. Called something like called a company. We are called the people of North Central. That's the name of a company. It's a corporation. We do business in the name of North Central. Called Christians means to transact business in the name. And I find that to be a powerful, it's a, it's a, in modern corporate language, it would be a DBA, doing business as, but um, 
Christians are doing business as the people of God, the people of Jesus Christ. And there in the church, there were prophets and there were teachers. That's in Acts 13. And they sent out apostles. And so there at Antioch, you have these three things designated, apostles, prophets, and teachers. And that ought to sound familiar to all of us around here, because these are the gifts that uh, Jesus gave to the church, apostle, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher, uh, for the perfecting of the saints. And so Ephesians 4, 11, and 12 is intrinsic to what it means to be at North Central. And we say that all people at North Central, you're either a 411 or a 412, right? Uh, an apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. I throw deacons in there because they're in there in Acts chapter 6. Or the body of Christ, supernaturally gifted. But another way to look at it is to say this. We are all like the church at Antioch. We are all like the church at Antioch. The Bible says that when the Holy Spirit has come upon us, we will receive power. And we will be witnesses. And that's not relegated to just one particular gift. That is the gift of the body of Christ. We are all witnesses. Jesus put it this way. You are salt and you are light. And people will see the light of your life. They will see the good deeds that emanate out of your life. And they will give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so the Antioch Initiative is not only about missions. It's about being, Antioch, about being an Antiochian Christian or to be a part of the church. And when we are in, of, and like Christ, the very things that are important to Christ become the things that are the most important to us. If I were to ask you the question, what is the most important thing to Jesus? What is the most important thing to Jesus? I think the answer would not be really hard to find. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. That's why he came to give his life, to live as an example, to die as a sacrifice for the redemption of those who are lost in sin. That is the highest priority in the life of Christ. So then should it be any surprise that those who are in and of and near and like Jesus have that as our highest priority. Does that mean that every one of us will go to Borneo, or that every one of us will go off to Saudi Arabia? No, it does not I mean that we will all go, but it means we'll have that spiritual DNA in us so that the concerns of God are our concerns no matter where we fit into the big design and the plan. The second thing is the preaching of Dick Brogdon. Actually, Dick's preaching this week, and Dick was a student here, Dick and Jennifer, and as I said, Dick, uh, I was his advisor, he was a Christian studies major at that time. Obviously, the hand of God on his life, very creative. He was one of those people that didn't need so much guidance as just freedom. And I believe in the call of God, young people. I believe in the gifts of God. And it's God who works in you. And one of the reasons I believe in freedom and choice and giving people space is because we can't put in what God has left out. And we can't take out what God has put in. And when you sense that the hand of God is on a young man, a young woman, what my attitude is, it is give them space. 
Give them room to explore. Give them room to, to uh, uh, exhibit what God is doing in them. Dick came to me once and he said, I think I'd like to take a class in small motor repair because I'm going to be a missionary in Africa and uh, they have diesel generators over there. They always break down. I want to know how to fix one. I said, sounds like a good idea to me. <clears throat> Instead of that doesn't fit in the curriculum, you know, you've got to do this or that. The, um, and to all of you, I would say, open your mind, open your heart to what God has put in you, what he's doing in you, and um, explore and be creative, and we'll do the best we can to help you be creative and also keep you within the curriculum so you graduate. But, so Dick is a wonderful friend, and Jennifer, um, <clears throat> but his messages were not your typical missions messages. He preached on the crucified life. His first point on his Wednesday message, abide in Jesus. He picked up on that then on Thursday as well. Abide in Jesus. Be near to him. Um, the presence of God in the life of the believer. And he talked about gravitas. He used that word a couple of times. It's a powerful word. It means a weight, a bearing. That when you come into a room, there are some people that are heavyweights and there are some people that are just lightweights. The heavyweights, when they come into the room, they change the atmosphere. They are different. There's a gravitas. There is a weight about them. You can tell there's something special about them. And he asked the question, when you enter an environment, does it change because of the gravitas that you have for having been in the presence of God? And that thought is very much like Moses coming off the mountain. He received the Ten Commandments. When he came down off the mountain, said the skin on his face shone. He was glowing in the dark. Now that's gravitas. That is the weight of bearing. That is the uh, representation of having been in the presence of God. He then said that we have to die to self. The bar of entry is death to self. And he used a phrase that I'm sure I'll never forget. Something along the lines, we must embrace the cross so we can avoid being impaled on the sword of flesh. We must embrace the cross, die daily, take up his cross, and follow him. And to accept the crucified life so that we can avoid being impaled on the sword of flesh. Being crucified is difficult. Dying in the flesh is deadly and eternally separates you from God. And then he said, go to hard places and hard people. And uh, with the presence of God that is in your life that's there by constant abiding and spending extravagant time in the presence of God, you will be able to manifest the life of God, manifest the light of God. And those three points are not specifically um, missionary-type messages. But the fact is, that's the very heart of missions. Mission is not taking just a story or just a theology or just a book. Missions is taking the life of God that is present in you. Missions is taking the presence of God with you wherever you go. And to go someplace or to someone with a story without an experience, with theology but without the presence, is flimsy and it is unconvincing and not compelling and it does not bring change in people. And so missions and the presence of God 
work together side by side. Matthew 1.16, Jesus says of the body of Christ, you are light and you are to live your life so people will see the light and then give glory to your Father in heaven. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 speaks of the gifts of the Spirit. These are supernatural powers that are placed in the life of every believer. But he calls these the manifestation of the Spirit. And uh, the word there, manifestation, means the showing forth. That the, the life of the Spirit, the work of the Spirit, shows forth out of the life of the believer. And so Jesus, with the light shining forth, and Paul, with the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit, being shown or manifested, they are one and the same. We are all called to be the people of God, living in the presence of God, in, of, near, and like Jesus, carrying the life of Jesus that lives in us to make an impact on the whole world. Be it very near Jerusalem or Judea or Samaria or even to the very uttermost. And now let me give you an application of this <clears throat> Drawn from C.S. Lewis. Lewis, of course, was a great thinker and has had a profound impact on the world. <clears throat> but I want to read three quotes, and I want you to listen carefully to the words of Lewis. as the things that I have just shared with you now presented in a different way, presented by Lewis, taken from mere Christianity. In the chapter, Is Christianity Hard or Easy? Here's what he says. Christ says to us, give me all. I don't want so much your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but I want to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit, and I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. And so you see in those words, death to self, the entry point of life in Christ. Later he says, in our natural state, we are not the sons of God, only, so to speak, statues. We have not got Zoe or spiritual life. We only have bios or biological life, which is presently going to run down and die. Now the whole offer which Christianity makes is this, that we can, if we let God have his way, come to share in the life of Christ. If we do, we shall then be sharing a life which was begotten, born of God, not made, which always has existed and always will. Christ is the Son of God. If we share in this kind of life, we shall also be sons of God. We shall love the Father as he does, and the Holy Ghost will arise in us. He came to this world and became a man in order to spread to other men the kind of life he has by what I call good infection. Every Christian is to become a little Christ. The whole purpose of becoming a Christian is simply nothing else. 
<clears throat> and one last quote. In the same way, the church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ, to make them little Christs. If they are not doing that, all the cathedrals, the clergy, the missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. The church at Antioch, we've read the passage, I paraphrased it <clears throat> the other day, paraphrase it again. And in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. And when they were ministering to the Lord, the Holy Spirit spoke to them and said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid hands upon them, they sent them out and they went out in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is doing business in the name of Jesus. The church at Antioch was a missionary church not because it was a going, sending church. It was a missionary church because it was a church made up of Christians, little Christs, the people of God doing business, transacting business in the name of Jesus. I just love that. We are agents the name may be such and such LLC or corporation this or that, but we are doing business as the people of God in the name of Jesus. I'd like to have a final slide put up that um, I hope you'll be able to see. It's a picture, <clears throat> if we have it up there. It's a picture of a little boy in Africa taken August 1987, it's a cover picture on National Geographic. And are, are we able to find it or get it? Okay, there's another way to get to this. Do you have your phone? Do you have your phone? Google National Geographic cover, August 1987, and you should get this picture. National Geographic cover, August 1987, and this picture should pop up. <clears throat> when somebody gets it, if you find it, raise your hand or wave. So wouldn't this be a horrible thing if nobody in the whole place can find it? <clears throat> I found it. If I found it, you can find it. You got it. It's there. Okay. Do you see the picture? <clears throat> if... Um, you have it and the person next to you doesn't, let them look at it. I want to tell you about this picture and why it's important to me. Nineteen eighty seven is twenty nine years ago. I came here in nineteen eighty two. We, at that time, we don't have a subscription now to National Geographic, but it's one of those great magazines. We had a subscription to it. And, <clears throat> and I remember so clearly as though it had happened this morning, getting the mail and finding the recent edition of National Geographic, opened it up to this picture, this cover. And I had a supernatural experience. I can remember sitting down on the couch, coffee table in front of me, looking at this picture, and it had to do with the desert in Africa, sub-Sahara, and how 
good farmland was being turned into useless desert and the poverty and the oppression of the picture of this boy. And I've looked at this picture many, 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 many times, carry a copy of it in my preaching notebook that I take when I go out to preach. <clears throat> Sometimes you will see something, but you only see it with the natural eye. It's a picture of a boy, red shirt, the seams torn, his shoulders sticking through the gaps in the material. And then there are spiritual times, experiences, where you see something more than that. This was one of those times. I looked at the picture, and I was flooded with a number of thoughts. First of all, this is horrible. This is a picture of sadness, oppression, poverty. This is a picture of the work of sin in the world. This is a horrible thing. It was a theological thing. It was an ecological thing. It was multifaceted representation of the horror of human existence that some people experience. But there was also an emotion, and I, can't, I can hardly describe it. It was, it was really not sorrow. It, it was beyond sorrow to a point of a sense of emptiness, vacuity, hopelessness, uh, beyond tears, beyond emotion and, oh, isn't that horrible and I feel bad. It's, it's as though I entered into the total hopelessness represented by this boy. The picture is a photograph, but it's a work of art. When you see his hand over his face and his shoulders protruding through the fabric. Hopeless. <clears throat> and as I looked at it, it was not just emotion. It was like an encounter with God and the reality of all existence represented by this little boy. And I said things to myself like, and so Anderson, what are you doing about anything important? What are you doing that really matters? You teach philosophy at a school with wonderful people, wonderful friends, wonderful students, and halfway around the world you have this, and most of the world is like this, and what is your trivial life amounting to? And what are your flimsy little lectures on philosophy really doing to change anything important? I was just, I was just overwhelmed by this sense of vacuum, emptiness, pointlessness. And then I said to myself, well, so maybe I should resign and go to Africa as a missionary and do something about it. And now, years later, Diane and I were under missionary appointment, not in Africa, but in Eastern Europe. <clears throat> but it really seemed that the Lord did not say, yes, that's it. This is your call to the Sahel in Africa. It was not that. In fact, it was the opposite. No, you are not to go to Africa to find this boy and try to do something about his salvation and lack of water and food. So what do I do? And here was what then came to me. That if you are to be a Christian, you need to carry the concern that you're experiencing right now looking at this picture and carry it with you every day of your life and let it punctuate and permeate those philosophy lectures and the times you teach. And so instead of this just putting it in a missions file, some silo out there for those people who do this stuff to do, but to have it deeply embedded in my own heart. And so that what I would do would be done in light of what this boy needs. And I would say that to a great extent, and certainly not every single day, 
But I come back to this over and over and over and over and over again. Why do I exist? And why do I teach or preach or do administration or sit in a budget meeting or meet with the alumni board at 2 o'clock this afternoon? Why do we do what we do? We do what we do because we are the church. We are the body of Christ. We are Christians. We are little Christs. We are little specks of light representing that great light, God himself revealed in Christ. And that everywhere we go, the gravitas, the weight, the bearing, the gifts, the outflow of the Holy Spirit should be a part of everything we do, whether it's making our bed in the dorm room, or sitting in chapel, studying for an exam, writing a paper, whatever we do, that we are people of the presence, the church. I'm not going to recommend that we go around here calling each other little Christs. That would sound kind of cultish, wouldn't it? <clears throat> but when we see one another, we see each other's members of the body of Christ, and we love each other, care for one another. And when we think of the world or watch the news, we think of what C.S. Lewis said. The church is all about only one thing, bringing people into the life of God. And so, as I summarize this week, I hope that the word Antioch, they were, the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch, doing business, transacting business in the name of Jesus Christ. And there were apostles and prophets there in that church. And they were sent out to take the light of the gospel down the street, across the street, around the world. And such are we. Let's stand together and I'll call you to prayer. In that Acts 13 passage, <clears throat> the word fasted occurs twice. It says, while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, and later it says, when they had fasted and prayed, they laid hands on the apostles, on Barnabas and Paul, and sent them out. Every Friday, we fast and pray. That's part of the disciplines of dying to self, subordinating our human flesh to the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's why we fast and pray. That's why we pray with people. And that's why we lay hands on people. And in this hour of prayer, we enter into that extravagant, wonderful intimacy with Jesus. And so, as we've done for so many years, I call you again to a time waiting upon the Lord, spending time with Jesus in quiet, reading your Bible, <clears throat> praying aloud or praying quietly, praying alone or praying in a group. And we have the symbols of the death of Jesus over here, the Eucharist, we have oil. And we'll be here to pray with you, lay hands upon you, and pray that the gravitas of God will be a part of your life as you spend time with Jesus. Amen? So let's gather. Let's pray one more time. Dear Jesus, allow us to enter into your very life and your, the essence of your being. Come and be in us, O oh God, and work in us and through us. 
and impart to us your very nature, for this is your work, we pray. And as we pray together today, may that work be furthered considerably in our journey to be the people of God, the children of God in the world, the light of God to the lost. We pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's go to prayer. <clears throat> Thank you, Lord.